0: Turn again, if you will, to Malachi chapter two, <clears throat> last book of the Old Testament. Malachi. Today we'll look at uh, chapter two, verse seventeen, down through chapter three, verse five. Two seventeen to three five. <clears throat> Do you ever ask yourself, what on earth is God doing? We look around us at the confusion and the upheaval that we often see in the world. I know I can't help but ask sometimes, Lord, what are you doing? But it doesn't just stop there as I look at the confusion and upheaval that sometimes arises in my own soul. The same question arises in, in very intensely personal terms. What on earth is God doing with me? Well, that's the text, the issue of the text this morning. What's God doing? The, the question, the confusion. Where is he in all this? Well, let me read, beginning with verse 17 and then reading into chapter 3. You have wearied the Lord with your words. <coughs> How have we wearied him, you have. By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. The offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. two lessons I think we ought to learn from this passage, which is perhaps a little difficult on first reading to sort out. Two two lessons. The first is this. Don't misunderstand God's patience. Don't misunderstand God's patience. Every every week for probably 35 years now, I have received and read either Time or Newsweek magazine. Since I work alone in my study a fair amount, and even when I'm out, I'm often in the company of Christian people, reading the secular news magazine becomes an important time of me having to confront the world around me not my only confrontation by any means, but it certainly is a more comprehensive one. But I will admit to you that every week as I read, my faith is tested. It's tested in one of two ways. Sometimes the things that I see, the things that I read, sound very enticing. I'm tempted to begin to love those things that others are loving. To buy into the thinking that permeates the world. Which, of course, I know would involve denying the Lord. That's one way that I'm tested. But other times, more often I suspect, I hate what I see and what I read. I don't just disagree, I loathe it. And so, I'm tempted there to react with angry cynicism. Become a skeptic. Get a chip on my shoulder and end up questioning God, why don't you stop this mess? Which of course, also denies the Lord. That's exactly what's happening in Malachi's day. As we read in that last verse, verse 17 of chapter 2, let me read it again. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, Where is the God of justice? Now remember, this is written in one of those long waiting times in history. And the fact that God did not seem to be doing anything was misunderstood by his people, who then wearied him with their wrong attitudes. And those attitudes are summarized in these two contrasting statements. First of all, some people said... All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. who are these folks? These are the ones who just bought into the system of the world, who went along with the thinking of the day. In doing so, they reordered their own little value system to make things that God said he hated okay, because they were okay with the world. They mistook the silence of God For consent. They assumed that because God didn't do anything to stop them, he must approve. Malachi addressed this earlier. These are the people who profane God's temple with blemished sacrifices just because it's expedient. These are people who marry outside the faith just because I felt like it. I loved him or her. These are people who who get divorced without a cause just because I just decided I wanted to do that. And who's gonna tell me I can't? They justify it because God didn't stop them. God didn't say anything. Nothing happened. And folks, this kind of thinking is still around. It's everywhere. The church in our day, I must say, not Wiser Lake Chapel per se, but the church in America is so in tune with the thinking of the culture that we are virtually unable to distinguish between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of our age. It seems that the longer God waits to come and judge, the more people just assume that he will never come. The longer the godlessness continues, the more it becomes the status quo, and people just come to accept it and say, that's the way it is. It must be all right. We were too narrow in our thinking before. After all, God is not doing anything. He's not seeming to object. It, It must be okay. We call evil good. Say, God's pleased. Oh, don't misunderstand God's patience, Malachi says. God may have delayed judgment, but that doesn't make everything okay. God hates sin. He hates worldliness. He hates the rule of expediency. He hates the pragmatic attitude that ignores his word and just goes with what works at that moment. according to peter the only reason god delays his judgment on all the things he hates is because he wants some more people to be saved but it didn't go away don't misunderstand god's patience so well, this morning i call you to guard your heart every time you and i pick up a newspaper or a news magazine or or flip on the radio or the television or get on the internet or interact with people in the world around us, we are confronted with a world that has turned truth upside down. And we must guard against the danger of wanting to fit in and say, God approves." Through Isaiah, God said, oh no. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Don't misunderstand my patience, God said, And buy into the godless thinking around you. But others, of course, had quite a different response. Others in verse 17 looked at the world and said, Where's the God of justice? These are the cynics of the day, who say, If there's a God, where is he? Why doesn't he do something? These are the scoffers that Peter speaks of who say, where's the promise of his coming? Everything seems to be just going the way it always has been. These are the ones who put God on trial for allowing suffering in this world. How could a good and powerful God, they say, allow suffering and evil that we see in the world? He must not be good or he must not be powerful. Where's the God of justice? Well, these sometimes are people who used to be Uh, believers, apparently, who used to be zealous for the right, who, who used to stand against the unrighteousness, and now they feel betrayed by God. They feel like God let them down. He didn't do what they expected. He didn't judge like they thought he should. He didn't remove some problem like they thought would be wise, and therefore they become angry and cynical. And as you and I look around in the world, aren't we tempted to do the same thing? We're not beyond self-righteous anger directed toward God. We're not exempt from the, def- the temptation to defiantly sneer at God and say, you really don't care, do you? Don't think that can't arise in your heart and mind. It certainly can. Even so-called Christians often turn quite cool toward God when he doesn't satisfy their expectations. But again, Malachi says, don't misunderstand God's patience. God hasn't forgotten about justice. God is not blind to what's going on. God is not helpless. He's not somehow failed to notice your situation. No, his justice is very sure his agenda is just different than yours. He's not ev- interested in making everything the way it ought to be right this moment. for you see, that would be judgment day. And right now, he's busy snatching people from the dominion of Satan because judgment day is coming. So folks, don't put God on trial in the trouble. The more we see the unrighteousness around us, the more we're We're tempted to become impatient with God. When we do that, we're acting like we have some superior standard to God, some standard of justice by which we can put him on trial. But we dare not adopt such an attitude. It may sound so religious, but God says, it wearies me for you to question my justice. Don't misunderstand God's patience. Question is just justice. Oh, make no mistake, God's prom- God promises that judgment's coming. Look here at chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And down in verse 5, so I will come near you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Peter reminds us in his epistle that a day with the Lord, a thousand years with the Lord is like a day. God has not forgotten. He's coming in judgment. He's just patient. He's calling people to repent while there's time. We dare not misunderstand that patience. And grow impatient with God. And think that God denies, uh, has denied his promise, or has uh, reneged on his promise to come and judge. No, not one word has changed of his promise. Indeed, verse number one has been fulfilled already. The Lord Jesus clearly identifies John the baptizer as the one who was the messenger, who came to prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord Jesus is clearly the Lord who was to come clear that God has not forgotten. He's already begun his work. All that remains now is the fulfillment of verse 5, the day of judgment by that Messiah who came and died and was raised again and seated at the right hand of the Father, who we confess, from thence he will come to judge the world, the living and the dead. Don't misunderstand. God's justice will be displayed. This is a problem for us sometimes. Where is God in all this? Michael Card uh, has a powerful little song about this. It's actually a paraphrase of Psalm 13. When introducing his, this song on his album, he comments that, and I quote him here, there are numerically more psalms that complain to God than praise him. This is one of those songs. The intensity of the music hopefully reflects the intensity of the heart cry of the song. And indeed, if you know the song, the music is rather intense, a wailing lead guitar that will not be silenced, that many of you would not like the sound of, probably, and yet it fits the music. The words are straight from Psalm 13. Illustrate the frustration that we feel in the waiting Let me read you the words. Wailing guitar will have to wait. How long will you forget, O Lord? How long? How long? How I long to see your face, O Lord. How long will you hide? How I struggle with my thoughts, O Lord. How long? How long? Suffer sorrow in my heart, O Lord. How long will you hide? How long? Will you wait forever? How long? Look at me. Give an answer, Lord. How long? How long? Give me light. I can live no more. How long will you hide? My foes rejoice when they see me fall. How long? How long? We have overcome him now, they call. How long will you hide? How long? Will you wait forever? How long? Don't misunderstand. But patience. You see, we can understand why God's patient when we look at verse 5 again. For verse 5 reminds us that as we long for the Lord to do something, that what he does, his judgment may be more than we bargained for. We tend to want judgment which addresses the things that bother us. What we have described in verse 5 is absolute justice. Not just judgment of the criminals as we see them, but judgment on those who withhold fair wages. Judgment on those who take advantage of the defenseless. Judgment on everyone who does not fear God, no matter how respectable he may look to us. Oh, make no mistake, judgment is coming. Don't misunderstand God's patience. We look around us and say, what on earth is God doing? We're tempted to deny Him, either to abandon Him or to challenge Him. But this morning I call us back to the certainty of His promise. God is just. He is coming to judge. He proved it by raising Jesus from the dead. So don't misunderstand His patience. Don't go look for another Messiah. Don't turn your attention and reorder your priorities to fit this world because it's doomed. Don't allow yourself the luxury of cynicism either. Keep faith with the Lord. Don't compromise his word. Walk in his ways. His patience is for the sake of our salvation. Don't misunderstand his patience. And there's a second point which also helps us to answer the question of why God waits. And that we find here in chapter 3 in these early verses. Second point it says that Jesus first purifies his own people. Jesus first purifies his own people. These opening verses of chapter 3, Malachi, Malachi paints us a rather vivid picture of. He mentions the launderer and the launderer's soap, but mostly the picture he paints is the picture of the ancient refiner of silver. The craftsman sets over the furnace, heating the crushed ore to a molten state. And as he does, the dross, all the impurities which are less dense than the silver, rise to the top and are burned or removed and scooped off by the refiner. Again and again, the process is repeated. On and on it goes. The dross is burned, scooped off and cleaned until finally the last thin coating of, of oxide disappears in the pure, bright surface of the silver shine so that the refiner can see his own face in the silver. Malachi declares that in just such a way the Lord is going to purify his people. Look at verse 2 to 4 again. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. This came as a surprise to the people in Malachi's day. In fact, it surprised those who saw Jesus' earthly ministry. And and, and the truth is, it still makes us uncomfortable today. For though we long to see justice in the world, and they did too, these people before us, to see God come and deal with the impurities that corrupt society, we're not so excited when he chooses to start with us. But that's what he does. That's why Jesus came into the world as he did. Rather than just to appear and bring judgment and that was the end. No, he came to first refine his own people. That's what Peter, who talks so much about coming judgment, promises to us when he says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. You see, Jesus first purifies his own people. Actually, I think we can distinguish two levels of purification that take place. First of all, there's this corporate level. He purifies his church. That's what we see in the earthly ministry of Jesus. We see him cleansing the temple, and ridding it of the false activities that God hated. We see him condemning the leaders, the Pharisees, for their hypocrisy and Was him speaking a parable so that the unbelievers would be confused and wouldn't understand what he was saying. And Jesus promises that that kind of cleansing is going to continue among his people. He speaks in John 15 of cutting off branches that do not not remain in him. He spoke of the rejection of God's people who did not respond to the invitation to the wedding feast. And he promised that the temple where he was rejected would be destroyed. In fact, that's what happened. Paul says the tree of Israel was cut down. 70 A.D., unbelieving Israel was destroyed. God purifies his people by pruning, by removing those who are untrue. And there's a warning for us here. We're not exempt from that pruning. If we do not abide in Christ, we too will be cut off. We've been grafted in in place of those who did not believe. If they could be cut off, we could be cut off. We dare not be found in unbelief ourselves. In the early early chapters of the book of Revelation, we have recorded the Lord Jesus walking amongst his churches and warning them. That if they do not repent, he will remove their candlestick to take the light from them. This is a warning to Wiser Lake Chapel, too. Don't think that we have some special privilege which allows us to be complacent or unbelieving or disobedient. No, no, those are the things that God wants to cleanse from his church. But at the same time, there's the second, more personal level of purification that also goes on. where Jesus individually purifies his people who are true in order that all the dross might be removed, the impurities might be removed, and we might shine perfectly in reflecting his image. And there's great encouragement. Here's the reason for the struggle that we have. Here's the goal of the trials that we, that we uh, face. Jesus is purifying the people that he loves. That's the message of James 1. Consider pure joy when you face trials because they work perseverance. That's the message of Romans 5. Suffering produces perseverance. That's the message of Hebrews 12. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord because he disciplines those he loves. That's the promise of Philippians 1. He who began a good work in us is going to complete it. not just going to save us from our condemned status and then leave us wallowing in sin. Oh, no, he's not. Jesus first purifies his people. I read somewhere that when they're refining silver... When you heat silver to its molten state, it gives off 20 times its volume in oxygen, causing a hissing and a bubbling. They call it spitting. As I read that, I sounded like me. <laughs> if God applies heat to my life, I bubble and I hiss and I spit. <laughs> Hard to be melted down and purified, isn't it? We don't like that. Hurts. And I know some of you are in that furnace. Your circumstances have pressed you beyond your limits, temptations were more ferocious than you ever dreamed they could be. price of discipleship is now looms larger than you ever knew. And perhaps you're hissing and spitting, stewing in the heat of the flames that God has brought upon you. Crying out, Lord, what are you doing with me? When I beg you, don't forget the purpose of it all that we might be pure brilliant untainted by impurity fitting for the master there's a song by Annie Herring it's often been my prayer we ought to learn it sometime I commend it to you Purify me with your love till I shine far brighter than purest gold in your eyes. Living God, consuming fire, burn the sin from my life. Make your will my desire. Take my life in your hands. Purify me with your love till I shine far brighter than purest gold in your eyes, living God. That's what the refiner, the launderer is doing. That's why judgment is delayed, because the Lord first is purifying his own people. what in the world is God doing? Well, I don't always know. But I do know that His justice has not failed and His judgment will come on schedule. So don't misunderstand His patience. It is for the salvation of His people. And what on earth is God doing in this church and in my own life, and especially when there's trouble? There again, I don't always know. But what I do know is that he is purifying us, that we might be useful to him. So quit the hissing and spitting. <laughs> Don't resist, or turn away. Amen. Thank you, dear Father, for your grand and gracious plan of salvation. Lord, we are so impatient, that if it were up to us, we would have just said, come and judge them all and found that we were those who were also destroyed. I thank you, Lord, for your great grace that endures the wretchedness of this world even in order that your people might be saved and even uses the trouble of the world to purify us and fit us for glory. Oh, Lord, protect us from this seductive thinking all around us. Keep us for yourself. Protect us, Lord, from the cynicism that so rises up in our hearts. Keep us for yourself. And as dangerous as it sounds, do whatever is necessary to purify us until your image is perfected in us. one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.